The me thing is alive and well in all of us. We assess situations with our biases and our predilections front and center. And boy, do we have biases and predilections. Seeking not really to understand what's going on, but rather to validate our perspective and ultimately confirm how right we really are about pretty much everything. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So I've been thinking a lot, which I tend to do, about how to solve all the problems of the world and all the problems in our lives. And it seems pretty overwhelming, at least to me and certainly to my wife, Kate, who last night at dinner, we were sitting around the table, both read the Sunday New York Times yesterday. She'd read the Sunday Review section back to back and just looked up to me and said, you know, that was tough. And I think we're all screwed. And she doesn't tend to be a negative person. So pretty eye-opening, I guess, for her to declare, call it abject misery. And it certainly does seem pretty overwhelming, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And actually, I think it is overwhelming. But I keep scratching at the dirt like a chicken. Actually, did you know chicken sales are up something like 500%? Not chicken for food, chicken in the grocery store, but chicken in the backyard. People are raising chickens as a form of comfort, I suppose, and maybe even control. So I, like a chicken, am scratching, scratching the dirt, trying to understand the root cause of all these issues we face societally and globally in order to determine what might be or yield an effective root solution. And what I've come up with or boiled it down to is this, that the solution is all about context. The problem is all about context. If we could, like the flicking of a switch, change the context from me to we, it might all work out. Allow me to elaborate. Humans, which you and I are one or two, look at everything through our own lens. Your partner and you out of sync, it's gotta be his or her fault. Your job not going right, your employer must be to blame. Global warming getting you down? Nothing you can do about it really, it's bigger than you, bigger than me. The context of me, I'm convinced, is a protective device, a subconscious capacity that we all hold near and dear to deflect blame or responsibility in order to soothe our delicate egos, ensure that our fragile self-worth is maintained while we avoid things we don't want to do or take on. I was reminded yesterday of a piece in, I think it was again, the New York Times, after some of the Trumpian reveals about his misogyny and poor treatment of women and his alma mater, Wharton, UPenn, the undergraduate program, came out and declared, wrote a piece that ultimately ended in the phrase, silence is complicity. Silence is complicity. 
And that is a, a meanness, right? That we, we become silent because it's self-preservation. Our self-worth is maintained and we get to avoid things we don't want to do or take, or take on. The polarization of our political leadership is a meanness in all of its ugliness. Silence is complicity. Meanness is fundamentally, well, it sounds remarkably like meanness is fundamentally an egocentric proposition, right? We start every analysis with the crass but crucial, what's in it for me question. And we end every conversation with an attempt to lay claim to victory and gain affirmation that we were right all along. Our favorite volley in all this, the I told you so. It reminds me of a conversation I had recently with Tom Ferber, who's one of the guests on my show, about the whole idea of taking the bait. Why do we take the bait? When somebody does something to us that we find as a personal affront, instead of rising above it, instead of letting it go, we take the bait. I did it not three weeks ago with my sister, who sent a text message ostensibly to my wife, but CCing my brother and I, basically implying that my brother and I were underperforming in the caretaking of our very elderly mother. Instead of letting it go, instead of recognizing where she was in her, her own personal challenges, what did I do? I took the bait. Meanness trumped weeness in the moment. And I called her and I ripped her face apart for suggesting that I was less than. And then for the subsequent two days, I suffered significant remorse, guilt, sadness, and ultimately came around and called her again to apologize. The me thing is alive and well in all of us. We assess situations with our biases and our predilections front and center. And boy, do we have biases and predilections. Seeking not really to understand what's going on, but rather to validate our perspective and ultimately confirm how right we really are about pretty much everything. I gave a talk in Argentina a few months back, and at some point, it's to an audience of thousand CEOs of the largest companies in Argentina, and at some point, I started talking about our biases and predilections and, and, our, and our need to be right. And I, and I looked at them, I looked at the audience and I said, how many of you think you're wrong today? How many of you think you don't have the answers to whatever questions you're facing? How many of you think you could possibly be not correct? And the answer is zero or almost zero. We are subtly, constantly, unrelentingly seeking to make sure that we are right, that we end up in a better position than the other guy, whoever the other guy might be. So many of the problems we face as a society, as Americans or non-Americans, from home stuff to global stuff, are fundamentally made harder to solve simply because people take me sides. The face mask, the current thing going on in, in America, is decidedly a me versus we issue. The people that are rejecting face masks are rejecting them because A, they don't like to be told what to do, but B, because they believe they're not going to get sick or they aren't sick. They reject the asymptomatic thing and they don't actually care if somebody might get sick from them. Me people. The we people, on the other hand, are wearing face masks because they are trying really hard not to perpetuate the contagion and not to get other people sick particularly their loved ones, particularly their elder loved ones, or particularly their loved ones with underlying conditions. Me, 
versus we. Immigration is another one. It's clearly a me versus we issue. The people that fear letting in people not of American background from all different countries are fundamentally trying to hold on to what they have and not caring about what we have and not even recognizing that the we-ness of us is a function of immigration. That other than the American indigenous native, everybody is an immigrant in this country. We all descended from other people coming here, many of whom were subjugated to terrible treatments, were persecuted in some form or another, religious or otherwise. The immigrants of today are the immigrants of yesterday, and we are all derivative of those immigrants. Another me versus we dynamic, which is decidedly maybe less important, but I think representative of the challenge and how sort of day, day in and day out it is, is picking up trash. So I'm not saying I'm a wonderful human being, but I try my best to pick up trash. My wife and I live in downtown Boston, and there's plenty of trash to pick up. And it's remarkable to me how many people I see walk down the sidewalk and not bother to pick up trash. I saw somebody walk literally across their threshold into their apartment today and walk over a plastic bag. Another one that gets me is I do the grocery shopping in our relationship and every week I'm in the grocery store and virtually every week in the grocery store, I see things that have fallen off the shelf. Yesterday, it was a box of oatmeal and uh, I watched multiple people walk by the box of oatmeal. It wasn't broken, nothing was wrong with it. And maybe you say, well, in a COVID environment, you know, people are afraid to touch things. Well, they're not afraid to touch things if they want the thing. They are afraid to touch things if they don't need or want the thing, and somebody else will need or want the thing. Another me versus we. Perhaps my biggest me versus we is the reluctance of our country, and this is America specific for sure, to invest more in public education. I really believe even the me versus we thing is a function of how we are developing or not developing our youth. That the capacity of our society to understand what to do, how to do it, the values, the beliefs, the morals, the principles, the ethics, all that stuff comes from education. Both the formal system, what happens in the school, and the informal system, what happens in the home, in the community, in the church, synagogue, what have you. And I think we are failing our youth, we are failing the future generations of Americans by not fundamentally investing more in public education, seeing it so centrally as a we thing. Instead, it's seen as a me thing. And I use my example. My example for this is my kid's surrogate grandmother, a lovely woman by the name of Pat Clapp, who lived next door to us for many years. She was widowed at some point. And I'll never forget, we were, the town we were living in was, was proposing a proposition two and a half, increase a tax to increase funding to its schools. And Pat, who was, again, the surrogate grandmother to my children, was completely against the tax. And the reason why she was, was A, she was on a fixed income, so I understand that. But B, her stance was, well, I already paid my taxes when my kids were little. So I took care of my kids. Why should I have to take care of your kids, even though they think I'm their grandmother? Paying taxes could be seen as a me or we, depending on the situation. Holding the door is definitely a we, right? It's not about etiquette. It's about humanity. Slamming a door is definitely a me. Voting can be motivated by either me or we. And there I go again. Hard to stay away from the politics of the day. A capitalist system is effectively a me system, right? 
survival of the fittest. I just need to do the best I can to get ahead for me and my family. Well, I'm no socialist. I am a little worried that the meanness of the capital system will only continue to create greater economic divides. And I think COVID-19 has just exposed how grand those divides are, how terrible those divides are. The fundamental irrefutable truth is whatever challenges we're talking about, they are our challenges. They are we challenges. No one exists alone. We share a country, we share a planet, we share finite resources, we share communities, we share homes, we share beds, we share streets, we share trash, we share everything. So I think it's entirely possible that every problem could be solved, every interaction could be made better, every innovation will have a greater chance of success, a far greater chance of success. If more of us were able to look at it through the eyes of the other person, in other words, the me context becomes we context. It might just be that simple. The real struggle, and this is where I think COVID potentially ends up being a silver lining to a very dark cloud for a lot of people, is that in order to shift context from me to we, I believe we need what I'll call shared adversity, that we need the threat to our existence, our collective existence, to motivate us as individuals to care about our collective existence. Historically, the sources of collective threat have been wars. And maybe, maybe, you know, centuries ago, plagues. The Black Plague in the 15th century served a purpose. It was actually part of the impetus for the first Renaissance. But since then, it's really required militaristic behavior. It's required war. In war, we create a shared adversity. When there is an enemy, we band together. When there is an enemy, we are willing to take risk and make sacrifice for the whole because we recognize that if the whole is not maintained, if the whole is not protected or saved, we lose our capacity to take care of our individualness. So the benefit, uh, hard to say that word, of COVID-19 is that it has become a form of shared adversity. All of a sudden, there is an enemy, an unseen enemy, but an enemy nonetheless. And in that shared adversity, it is possible that some percentage of us that were me people will become we people. And that out of this dark period in the history of man, human, will emerge an enlightened view, potentially a second renaissance, that the only way to continue on as a species is for we take a precedent over me. And that's my thought for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons. There are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.